to help us to learn Christian doctrine with a warm and a practical application. Every lesson has an accompanying study guide. The web link to find that guide is in the episode notes. Now, let's start the class and learn the lessons. So welcome to our Catechism class. Welcome back. After our summer break for the month of August, we're back to look at the Heidelberg Catechism and we're looking forward to a new season. In this lesson, we're looking at Lord's Day 11, question 29, where the Catechist is teaching us about the second clause in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. He asks us, why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Saviour? And the answer that we're required to give is because he saves us from all our sins and because salvation is not to be found, not to be sought or found in anyone else. Before we begin, let's read from Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 to verse 21. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream saying, Joseph, thy son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Saviour? Keep listening and we'll explore this important topic. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. names are really important. The modern tendency to name children after celebrities is a fairly recent and, in my humble opinion, a fairly regrettable innovation. It speaks volumes about the worthless values of our society. Our Western surnames often develop from a description of the occupation of the bearer. So Smith was a metal worker, Cooper was a barrel maker, and so on. Sometimes they describe our lineage as in Johnson, the son of John, McEwen, the son of Owen, O'Brien, the son of Brian, and so on. And our first names too were often chosen with great care and only after much deliberation among the family. I was given the names Robert Kirk. That was in honour of my maternal grandfather. And when my own children were born, they were given names to reflect the character of Bible heroes and then second names in honour of relatives. That was even more the case in Bible times. When John the Baptist was born, his father was given a direct command from God to name him John, even though no one in the family was called John. 
You can read the story in Luke chapter 1, verse 57 to verse 66. And when you read it, see the great anticipation. As the relatives waited to hear the name of the new baby, and think of the shock when they heard that he wasn't being named after any one of them, or any one of their predecessors, and the awareness then that this baby must be intended to be something entirely different. The naming of the baby Jesus was a similarly solemn and God-ordained event. To Joseph, entrusted with the guardianship of that infant Jesus, and thus ultimately responsible for his name, the angel gave a very direct command. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Joseph had no choice in the matter. Joseph has no options. The child's name would be Jesus. The naming of the Christ child had great significance. The name Jesus was a common enough name in New Testament times. It's actually the Hebrew name Joshua, which simply means Yahweh will save. There were two Joshuas in the Old Testament. Joshua, the successor of Moses, who led God people, God's people into the Promised Land, and Joshua, the high priest at the restoration of Jerusalem, the man who was instrumental in also leading people into a Promised Land. Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. So Joshua, in the time of the restoration of Jerusalem. But now a third Joshua has come. For despite the efforts of the previous bearers of that name, their victories and their work was at best only temporal. And the occupation of the promised land that they brought were at best only temporary. Only a prefiguration of the glorious land of milk and honey that awaits the saints of God. So a deliverer is needed. A deliverer whose work will be spiritual, whose work will be eternal. A saviour who will redeem his people and lead them into their eternal rest. That one was God's son, Jesus. In the Catechism, our instructor deals with this in question 29. And he asks why the Son of God is called Jesus, and he teaches us that it is because he shall save us from our sins, something that no other can do. Look at what he stresses. He reminds us that he saves us. When I was young, the Christian bookshop sold a little red metal badge with the words, Jesus saves. 
You rarely see them nowadays. And anyway, they'd probably just leave the modern Christian confused. Those who wore them were often the object of much derision and some snide comments. People would come up to you and say, Jesus saves what? Yet there's a volume of truth summed up in that little phrase. Jesus saves. For those who wore that badge, it had to be personal, as it was for the catechist. What does he save? He saves me. He saves us. He saves us from our sins. God has rescued us from our own willful, rebellious, self-destructive nature. Now, carefully notice, the catechist doesn't say that Jesus offers us salvation from our sins. You see, salvation is never offered to us on a take-it-or-leave-it basis, a basis that depends on our decision to appropriate what he offers for ourselves. Salvation has already been purchased. It has already been achieved. It has already been applied to us. It is ours. The work is finished. Many years ago, there was a record, well, a disc, What preceded the compact disc was a record, a long player as we called it in those days. And one of the songs on that LP was a hymn. And its words went like this. Why don't you give the Lord a try? Don't let this precious chance go by. I'm praying for you now that you will find the strength somehow to take the chance and give the Lord a try. What an awful song, full of worthless, unbiblical theology, full of Arminianism and full of semi-Pelagianism, as if we dead, helpless sinners would ever choose the Lord. Our sinful nature would ensure that we chose the evil and rejected God. What a pointless prayer to pray that somehow you will find some form of inner strength to choose Christ. How awful is it to tell dead sinners that they have to pull themselves up to God by their bootlaces. Thanks be to God, salvation is all of the Lord.
So Jesus saves us. But what does he save us from? The Catechist tells us that he saves us from all of our sins. So lest there be any confusion, the Catechist instructs us regarding what we have been saved from. It's our sins. We are not, as some of the purpose-driven, seeker-sensitive preachers would have us think, saved from having a purposeless life. We're not saved from having small dreams. We're not saved from having mediocre jobs. and We're not saved from having misbehaving children. We're not saved from the ills of this world as defined by liberal Protestants and liberation theology preachers. Ills like inequality. We're not saved from economic hardship or deprivation. We're not saved from lack of educational opportunities or poor housing. We are saved from something far more basic and far more destructive than all those other ills. And that's the root cause of every other evil in this world, and that thing is sin. So what is it? Well, sin is both negative and positive. Sin is the action of committing evil, planning it in our hearts, executing it with our hands, thinking and purposing and doing evil. But sin is also, in a negative sense, a falling short of the righteous standards that God has laid down in the law. We cannot keep the law, and so we cannot be justified under it. We sin because we are sinners. We are sinners from the day that we are conceived because we inherit our nature from our common father Adam. Our sin affects every part of our being. We are totally depraved, not meaning that we are as bad as we can possibly be, but that our mind and our will and our emotions are all tainted and stained by sin, and we are rightly described in God's word as being dead in trespasses and sins. But just how effective is Christ's saving work? Just as our sin affects every part of us, Christ's salvation cleanses us from all of our sins. His saving work cleanses us from the sin in our heart, from our sin-stained emotions which are straightened out, saves us from our wicked thought life. Our minds are renewed. Our rebellious will is brought into conformity with the will of God. Our hearts and our souls and our minds are renewed by Christ. How does he save us? He saves us by his atoning death on the cross. He frees us from sin's penalty, for the wages of sin is death, eternal death. On the cross, Jesus took my punishment and paid my death. The penalty and punishment for my sin was laid upon him. The debt is paid, and God who is just will not demand punishment twice. Isaiah 53 and verse 5 says that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. He saves us from sin's penalty. He saves us from sin's power. Sin's power is destroyed by Jesus. We will be tempted and sometimes To be honest, we will succumb to that temptation, perhaps more often than we might want to. But in Christ, all of our sins are forgiven, past, present and future. He saves us 
from sin's penalty, from sin's power, and soon from sin's presence. Not now, of course, for we live in a sin-cursed world. Sin is all around us in the philosophies of this age, in our conversations, in our media, in our schools and our colleges and even in our churches. But one day we will be taken from this world into God's immediate presence to a place where sin will be no more and the effects of sin will be felt no more. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Saviour? Because he saves us from all our sins and because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Finally, the Catechist teaches us that he is the only Saviour. We're going to explore this a little bit more in our next lesson. I was listening to a Christian radio podcast a short time ago featuring a segment where a Christian teacher was speaking to a group of Christian students in a Christian school. A girl from the the group of students began to hackle him when he said that Jesus was the only way of salvation. No, no, she said, Jesus is the only way of salvation for me. But for others, they may find salvation in other religions, other paths. Postmoderns can't accept any claims of exclusive, authoritative or absolute truth. And they carry that mindset over into their Christianity. The exclusive claims of Christ seem to make little impression on them. So the catechist, writing over 400 years ago, is right up to date when he insists that salvation is not to be sought or not to be found in another. As the catechist concludes, They who by true faith receive this Saviour must have in him all that is necessary to their salvation. In our next catechism lesson, we'll explore the fundamental doctrine of the exclusivity of Christ, that he is the only Saviour from our sins. So thank you for listening to the Catechism class today. It's interesting that while we were doing this recording, somebody was flying an aeroplane up and down in the sky over the top of the studio pod. I wonder if you heard it in the in the podcast. We'll be back, God willing, every week from now till the end of the year, talking about the Heidelberg Catechism. Do join me. There'll be other podcasts as well. We'll be looking at some church history. We'll be looking at some Christian ethics in our PRISM series. Meanwhile, if you want to support the podcast, please download the podcast app on your iPhone or your smartphone. Subscribe to the Semper Reformata podcast. Give it a five-star rating, and that really helps others to find the podcast and brings us new listeners. Meanwhile, God bless you, and I'll talk to you again next week, God willing.